wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. You can find links to our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at bleedingdaylight.net, as well as many more conversations with people kicking against the darkness. Today, we're taking a frank look at a topic that has taken a great toll in the lives of many people, yet in our current age is so often treated as normal and harmless. I do hope that you engage in the battle and share this episode with others. A chance discovery as a young child began a 20-year struggle for Fred Stoker. The battle that caused in his life led him to write the book Every Man's Battle, a book that has been published in 30 different languages. That book spawned others covering similar issues for different audiences. Fred's most recent book is the one that he's co-authored with his wife, Brenda. It's titled Battle On, Battle Over. I'm so pleased to have Fred join me on Bleeding Daylight today. Thank you so much for your time. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate it very much. Many people would have read or at least would know of your book, Every Man's Battle. But for those who don't know about it, let's go back to that young first grader and the discovery that you made. Tell me what it was that made such a mark on your early life. Well, I can actually literally see my parents' bedroom in my mind's eye. I mean, it's funny how after all these years, I can see it the same way. Uh, I remember I was playing with a ball at roll under my dad's bed. I went to get the ball and I saw a magazine under there and I just out of curiosity, I pulled it out and it was a Playboy magazine. I began to flip through that and something just grabbed me. I mean, from then on, everything kind of changed a little bit. I mean, I was still only six years old. It's not like I got into a pornographic habit right away, but it began to attract me. By the time I was in college, I was essentially uh, memorizing when my favorite pornographic magazines would come into the campus drugstore. I would be there when the doors open in the morning, uh, and I would get the newest pictures, uh, because obviously anybody that's hooked on porn knows that the newest pictures are the things that you want. It led to chasing women, and by the time I was one year out of college, I had four girlfriends. I was sleeping with three of them and engaged to be married to two of them. So you can kind of see from that one small spot back when I was six years old to the time when I was 23 with four girlfriends, it was a mess. And I got way off the rails when it came to my sexuality. It's interesting that you talk about the way that you then reacted and interacted with women that it's almost like women became something to consume in the same way that you were consuming the pornography. And I suppose that's the danger in this time where pornography is so much easier to come by because it's in the palm of everyone's hand on their phone. Some people would like to think that this is just something that is normal or has been normalized. And yet even for that six-year-old, it started a pattern that changed the way that you thought about women. Do you think that most people realize that that's what's going on for them? Oh, no, no, I I really don't believe that they do. I remember speaking at Iowa State University 15 years ago now, but I remember in the chat rooms and the the boards after my talk, I mean, they, they came out and just ripped me because, you know, I'd made the statement that 
when you look at porn, you begin to objectify women and see them more as objects. Studies show that that's true. I mean, you can't deny it, but the average person doesn't notice it in their life. I mean, what they would do is they were just attacking me and saying, look, I look at porn, but I don't objectify women. I respect them. I know that they are just like us, and I don't treat them any differently. But the fact of the matter is, looking at porn literally changes the neural pathways in your brain and literally changes the way you look at women, the way you objectify them. And actually, it even changes the way your sexuality is processed in your brain. People, I don't think, really understand the damage uh, that they're doing to themselves, but they are. And we know that the statistics would say that children are encountering pornography younger and younger, whether they're looking for it or whether they just trip over it when they're online. It's one of those things that people are encountering younger and younger. So, Where is there hope in that as we start to see that that can start to set up a pattern in a young man or a young woman's life? Where is the hope in that? Well, the hope in that is that you don't have to go in that direction, okay? And and obviously, the, the drama of it right now is that you see just a complete change in the way that we look at it. So many people now look at porn as just another form of entertainment. I know that statistic I saw the other day that kind of shocked me was that 50% of the students coming out of seminary are saying that porn is okay. If you just use it to release pressure, it's no big deal. Really, the issue is is we, we tend to see porn as more of a moral issue or some kind of a spiritual issue somehow and a right and wrong issue. But the fact of the matter is, is it isn't. It's also very much a physical issue. If it were just something that's moral, if it's just something that's right or wrong that you can kind of choose and it's just another form of entertainment, it would be a completely different conversation. But the science of it is very real. As I said, it changes the neural pathways. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. The human brain, the male human brain especially, has two pleasure centers. One is the sexual pleasure center that's tied to sex with a genuine woman, especially, for instance, a wife in the marriage bed. What it does is it processes that sex and and ends up at orgasm with a very strong sense of peace, consummation, that kind of pleasure, the pleasure of connection with another human soul. The other pleasure center is more of a pleasure center designed around that desire, uh, that lust, looking forward to what's coming. That's a different chemistry in the brain. And the interesting thing is, is when we look at porn, when we consume it on a regular basis, the way that we're made literally changes. What in a a kind of a normal man, so to say, who hasn't been looking at porn a lot, uh, that first pleasure center is the one that's primary. And that's the one where most of the sexual processing goes to that pleasure center. What happens after looking at porn for a long period of time is that the neural pathways literally begin to change to which pleasure center your sexuality is leading to. And it goes to that second pleasure center. What we see 
now is a uh, erectile dysfunction kind of a epidemic among 20 and 30 year olds, which should be impossible because that's the time where testosterone is at its highest levels in males. But we're seeing a ridiculous situation across the globe where 20 and 30 year olds cannot get an erection when they're in the presence of a genuine woman because their pleasure centers are now reversed and they actually need a computer in front of them and they actually need to be approaching sexuality from that other viewpoint in order to even get an erection. It's not that they're broken. They can still get an erection, but they can't get it with a genuine woman. They tend to only be able to get it in front of the computer. You say, well, where is the hope? The hope on one level is in understanding the science behind it and how devastating it is so that people stay away from it. I know that my two sons, I raised them to understand this early. They didn't ever get into porn or masturbation. One of them's married now. One of them's 31. The one that's married, he went from puberty all the way to the wedding altar and never got hooked and never got stuck. But he understood that looking at porn is literally like taking cocaine or heroin. When you look at what's happening in the brain, when a man is looking at porn and responding to porn through self-pleasure, what you see is it looks almost identical to what happens in the brain when he's taking heroin. If we understood that as parents, and if we taught our children appropriately, there would be a lot of hope in that. The second hope, of course, is in faith. I know for me, I got trapped without knowing it. And with porn being so available in smartphones, you can definitely get hooked on that very early. But one of the things that happened for me was that I got saved. I began to study the Bible. I began to see how this was affecting me in my marriage. I knew I needed to cut that off. I needed to break that. And I approached it a lot like I would if I was trying to break a heroin addiction. I, The first thing you have to do is stop shooting heroin, right? And so the first thing I had to do was learn how to block my eyes, bounce my eyes away from the sensual things in my environment so that I could cut off that so-called drug flow, uh, that pleasure flow of those chemicals. What began to happen is that as I broke away, as I cut off the drugs, I began to kind of go back to original specs. My brain kind of went back to how it's supposed to be, where my entire sexuality was aimed at my wife instead of at all the other women around me in the world. I began to become normal, so to say. And uh, I think that's where the hope lies, is understanding the damage, realizing that it is changing the way you look at women, and it is literally changing your sexuality, breaking it in a sense, and then taking the right steps to free yourself. I'm interested in your definition of porn. I once heard someone say that in their mind, porn was anything that caused someone to be lusting for someone. So it didn't necessarily have to be the sorts of things that we might consider porn. So in your mind, what would that definition be? (laughs) Most people wouldn't like my definition, but I'm glad you asked the question. I mean, for me, in order to win this battle, I had to define it the way really God defines it. And that is that I can't be drawing any sexual gratification from anyone or anything except my wife. What does that mean? Well, 
when we realize that we can draw sexual gratification through our eyes, through anything in our environment, it starts to really broaden things very quickly. I remember when I first began to fight this battle, I began to really study what my eyes were doing. If a woman was bending over in the grocery store parking lot to put her child into her car seat, and if she had shorts that were a little short, I was staring and I was drawing sexual gratification. If I was flipping through a magazine, saw someone in a bikini, I know women will say, well, wearing a bikini, that's not porn. Well, if you actually saw in the male brain what literally happens when men are looking at women in thong bikinis, they would be shocked. I mean, if you could put a woman inside a man's body for even five minutes, they'd be shocked at what the male eye can do. So for me, I looked at it and I said, look, anything that's going to bring any sexual gratification is going to continue that drug flow. I need to be free. There will be people listening to this that will just go, gosh, this guy is insane. This guy has very tight standards. But you need to look at the results. It has been 40 years since I've actually looked at a literal pornographic site or magazine like a Playboy or something like that. It has been over 30 years uh, since I've ever uh, gone to a computer or a television or something like that to look for something to lust over. I haven't masturbated in over 30 years. So on a personal level, I am literally totally free. The only person I ever get any sexual gratification from is my wife, Brenda. And then you look at the results of my family. My two sons, I've already talked about them. My two daughters are living very pure lives, and none of them have ever gotten hooked on the idea that sex is somehow our medication to the problems in our lives, or that it's something that's just naturally to be consumed like an entertainment I would just say that we need to look at it the way the Bible looks at it. And the Bible says you're not to have even a hint of sexual immorality in your life. And that's from Ephesians 5.3. And when you ask the question, well, what does a hint mean? Well, a hint is what I said. Anything that brings sexual gratification through the eyes or through lusting over old memories, that's got to go. Honestly, when I look at it, and I'm just giving you my idea of how I approach this, I just feel like it's a manhood issue. It's an integrity issue. If I can draw sexual gratification through my eyes, and if I'm married and I've promised myself to my wife, I need to have integrity and keep my integrity and keep myself pure. But it goes even farther than that. I mean, there's an author named John Eldridge, which I really liked his book, Wild at Heart. It came out about the same time that Every Man's Battle came out. And one of the things he said was that there is a cry in the heart of every man that's pretty consistent across the world. And I, I've had the good fortune of being able to speak to men around the world on this issue. And I've seen the same consistency that men are longing for three things. They're, they're longing for a battle to fight, an adventure to live with someone, like a wife, for instance, something to build, and then they're in life to defend the beauty in their life. And usually that means a damsel in distress or, or their wife. Okay. So when I look at this battle uh, for purity, I'm not looking at this as something that's sort of a, oh, just keeping my hands clean and making sure that God doesn't slap my hands for doing something wrong. I see this as a manhood issue. 
learning how to control my sexuality properly, I have a great sex life with my wife. I, I'm not hungry for sex, but I don't get all this from outside of my marriage. And that was the battle, to fight, a great battle, okay? And it was an adventure to learn how to live and move and breathe in a sensual culture without stepping into those manure piles along the way, so to say. And then most of all, I wanted to defend my wife and my family from the pollution uh, that comes from this. And what I found is that my manhood was completed through this battle. I know if you were to ask a hundred guys on the street, hey, what's your ticket into manhood? At least 99 of them would say going to bed with a girl, using your sexuality, you know, keeping things hot. Okay, well, actually, that's your ticket out of manhood. What I have found is that owning my sexuality instead of having it own me, that is a completion of my manhood. That is the ability to stand and be who I say I am, whether I'm out in public or whether I'm alone in a dark room with my computer. I'm the same. I'm the same, whether I'm by myself or with other people. That's integrity, and that's what I believe God would intend men to be like. You're calling people to very much a higher standard. In some of the text on the website for your new book, it says, Sexual integrity is heavily emphasized throughout the New Testament, yet today the collective conscience of the Christian church has fallen asleep on the matter. Yes. Can you see that reversing? Can you see that changing in that the whole church seems to have fallen asleep? And I wonder whether it's because so many people have fallen that they just want to brush it under the carpet and pretend it doesn't exist. Well, you know, it's a hard battle. It, it doesn't remain a hard battle over time, but the actual battle to get free, first of all, is a very difficult one, and and you have to sacrifice things. It, it will cost you socially. There are people that don't necessarily want to live like that, and, and maybe their kids wouldn't want to relate to my kids, those sorts of things. So, I mean, those are issues, okay, number one. And then uh, number two, I guess, I mean, you just look at it and you say, well, where is my tribe in life? Well, it's hard to find other people that care about this. It can be difficult. That's number one. Uh, but can it be done? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because you have to think about what a church is made up of, and a church is made up of individuals. I looked at the scripture. I decided, look, I need to live up to this scripture, and I'm going to fight until I win. I am not going to keep cheating Brenda out of part of my sexuality. I'm not going to pass this on to my sons. I've got to win this battle so I can teach them how to win the battle. I wanted to change the direction of my family tree. I mean, that's what I felt like what my destiny was. My two male grandparents, they were hooked on porn. My dad was, you know, when I looked in his desk at his office, died at age 72, I found pornography in there, the same Playboy magazines that I saw under his bed all those years earlier. So, I mean, not the same ones, but you know what I mean, the same type. I felt like I could be the one that would change the direction of the family tree, and I, and I did. Honestly, I think that we as a church, the Church Universal, we need to get serious about this and wake up because we have a lot to offer to the world if we can, first of all, get free ourselves. Let me explain to you how it works in local churches and why it's so important. 
I think it's in chapter 11 in the book, Battle on Battle Over, where I talk about this, but sexual purity literally affects the destiny of you as an individual. It affects your family destiny, but it also affects the church destiny. I was talking to a pastor of a church that was one of the most amazing places I had ever walked into. Uh, Most places I go when I go to speak, if I go to a church, for instance, most of the guys sort of hang back. They're kind of afraid to just kind of come up and get warm and talk to me. I think they think that I can read their sins on their forehead or something. I don't know what they think, but, uh, you know, they know I wrote every man's battle and they're like afraid that I might be able to look into their soul and call out their sin or whatever. That's how it usually rolls out for me. But when I went into this church, every, gosh, every guy came up to me and was just as warm as could be. And their chests were up, their chins up, eyes bright. I mean, it was It was an amazing thing to me. I I really couldn't understand what was going on. So when I was done with the weekend, I spent a little time with the pastor before I caught my flight. I asked him about it because I, you know, I hadn't really seen that before. And he said, it's really interesting what happened in his church. So he started with his church. It was a single church campus with 500 people. One of the things he found is that he just couldn't get men to step up into leadership and he couldn't understand why. He checked their giving records. He saw that they gave and, you know, men don't give unless they believe in what's going on at the church. So he knew they believed in him. They believed in them, in his goals in the church, but he couldn't get them to stand up. And he began to pray about it. And he got to the point where he felt like the Lord was letting him know, hey, it's because your men are self-disqualifying themselves from leadership. They know what they're doing sexually through porn and masturbation and different things like that. And they don't feel like they qualify to be leaders. And so he took the step of taking the book, Every Man's Battle, starting a small group of eight guys. And he went through the book. He admitted to them that he struggled. He wanted to get completely free. And they were just shocked. They thought that pastors are somehow, they don't struggle with sin. But because he got open, they got open. They began to admit them, you know, their struggles. Those guys got free. A couple of them wanted to lead their own groups. And over time, it got to the point where there were 40 of these groups going on in this church. At You know, the church began to grow, but there were 40 of these groups different times during the week so that no matter what time of the week you could do it, you could join. And this is what he told me. He said, as soon as some of these guys began to get free, They began to step into leadership. And we know that one of the biggest problems in the Christian church, Western Christian church, is that they're basically led by women. Women are are standing up, stepping up into leadership, teaching Sunday school, going on mission trips, but men generally aren't. And what he saw is that the men then began to lead. And he told me that any pastor will tell you that you can only grow as fast as you can raise up leaders to support and to help lead the people. As he began to raise up leaders, his church began to grow. He now has eight campuses and and heading towards 10,000 people in those eight campuses. You know, I asked him, is there anything else you did? He said, no, it was just getting the men free from their sexual sin allowed me to raise up leaders and allowed them to have this countenance that you were talking about when you stepped into my church. And it has changed the destiny of this church and of this community. And obviously, yes, I mean, you go from one campus with 
men like this to eight campuses. And it's a very large city, but they have a goal to take that city. But the thing is, you can't do that with men sticking their heads in their computers, uh, looking at porn and self-disqualifying. Can it change? Well, there's a very large church that changed everything, and they even have it set up so that you can't even become a member of that church unless you first go through one of these every man's battle groups because they don't even want you as a member if you can't step into leadership. So that's kind of a story that I think helps to display what's possible. You say, well, but can it be done? Well, the Lord, he can pour out revival. He can pour out understanding into men like this pastor, into men like me, into men like my sons. And these men can step up and lead others, and it can become a wave. Has it become a wave yet? No. Can it? Absolutely. And what I love is that as you talk, you're talking about being set free from this. Yes. As if that's a possibility and a reality. And that's part of why you wrote this latest book with Brenda, Battle On, Battle Over, to let men know, you know what, this battle can be done and finished. And that must be something that really sparks something within those people who are thinking, no, no, I'm saddled with this for life. I worked hard at picking a title. The thing I want to convey is, yes, okay, there is a battle and it's on. Uh, Obviously, from the moment somebody hands you a smartphone, the battle's on, okay? But the battle can be over. It's been over 30 years since I've even tried to go to look and lust at something. You know, that's, honestly, that's freedom now. Men need to understand that that's possible. And honestly, women need to understand that because we now have the first wave of female addiction to pornography in the history of the world that we know of. You might ask yourself, you know, women, they're not as visual as men sexually. Why are they getting hooked? I can remember back in the 70s, I was a teenager back then. And I remember Playgirl magazine going out of business because women just aren't into static pictures of men, just a photograph of naked men. But the pornographers have finally caught them because with the advent of streaming services across the world, what has happened is pornographers have realized that female sexuality is more relational instead of visual. And so what they've done is they've taken this streaming porn, they've added romance to the plot You'll see things like Fifty Shades of Grey, and you know women will argue, well, that's not pornography. That's horrid pornography. It's just tied to romance, so they don't necessarily recognize it as such. They get that tied in, and then they get hooked. And, and the thing is, the chemistry in the brain for women is, is pretty much the same as men. And so what we find with men is over time, they can learn to depend upon that, the pleasure chemicals and the dopamine that comes from looking at porn and comes from self-pleasuring and the orgasms and all that. That is something that eventually begins to be a way that they can medicate the wounds in their life, the stresses in their life, the pains in their life. They'll think they have sexual pressure or something, but it's really not. It's other pressures in life that drives them to get those drugs, okay? And what happens with women, and you know, I talked to a girl at a college in, in, up in Canada, and she had said, well, hey, this is how it happened for me. I kind of went to look at porn just to see 
what was up with it because everybody seemed to be looking at it. She got caught by the romance of the streaming video, self-pleasured, and pretty soon she was hooked on it because she was also at school a long way from home, lonely, feeling disconnected, and that helped to uh, medicate that pain. And it soon became a crutch in her life. One of the things that Brenda and I wanted to do is, first of all, address the fact that we're not just dealing now with male sexual sin and and addiction to porn, but women are now being addicted at a very high rate. We need to catch them too, because they carry the same smartphones, but they can stream now romantic porn and get hooked the same way. It's dangerous times right now, because there was always the female gender that helped keep things kind of clean. And now both of them are being stuck in this addiction, and we really need to get a handle on it. Do you think that part of the problem of women now engaging in this romance porn is that because guys are so busy with porn that the women are no longer being romanced in in the way that is right and is wholesome and so they're looking for that somewhere else? I'm sure that's part of it for some, without any question. You know, men have been definitely falling down in this aspect of relationship. They're splitting their sexuality. They're not giving 100% of it to their wives. But I think there are a lot of issues that tie to it as well. I think all of the view in life that men are toxic and men aren't necessary and all of the things that are out there in the culture being said, I think women don't value men as much either. Just like men aren't valuing women, they're objectifying them. I think women... They're not respecting men and what men can be. And so men, they're not really being seen as their protectors, as their defenders. They're not being seen as people that can fight great battles or live great adventures. And and so I think women have lost respect. So I think it kind of comes from both directions. Back in the book of Genesis, God looked down into Eden and said, look, this is not good for man to be alone. And he created women. What he created a woman to be is not some kind of subservient gender just to please men. The literal original Hebrew language that it was written in defined women as a side-by-side partner, okay, where equal, side-by-side, running, living a great adventure together. That gets fractured by pornography. That gets fractured by the romance porn. Again, we're kicking against how we were created to be. I believe that we can bring great health back into our societies by getting this back in order again. Who do you think the audience is for Battle On, Battle Over? Is it just those who are battling an addiction themselves, or is it going to be helpful for spouses that are wanting to help their husband or help their wife in this time? Great question. First of all, it's primarily written to couples. Okay. And the reason why that is, is that in my experience in counseling men, I have almost a hundred percent success rate in getting men free from porn addiction. If their wives join them in the counseling and join them in understanding what's going on behind it, if the wife is not involved, my success rate drops below 50%. It's not really every man's battle in some sense. It's really every couple's battle. 
really the first half of the book talks about male sexual addiction, the vulnerabilities in our sexuality, both as men and women, that makes it so easy to fall into this addiction. We talk about ways to build ourselves up to be able to have a strong enough foundation of integrity in life that we can carry sexual purity in our lives and keep it over time like I have. The second half of the book is primarily Brenda talking about how female spouses can really help their men get free. We're kind of living in a weird time. Some men are married to women that are just as hooked as they are, but then other men are hooked to women who, if they found out their husband was you know, hooked on porn, they, the women would practically have a nervous breakdown. I've seen many women react with anger, hatred, feeling betrayed. And that's a normal and natural way to feel when your husband is looking at other women and having sex with himself. So I'm not knocking that at all. And that's very much a a very normal and natural response. But we had to kind of talk about both those issues. First of all, how can you as individuals get free? But then the second half of the book talks about, okay, how can you work as a team spouses together to win this battle? And what is your attitude towards sex supposed to be after you find out your husband's hooked on porn? What is your marriage supposed to look like long-term so that you can take steps along the way to get to that goal? We're very excited about the book. Most of the people that are reading it are saying it's my best book by far, not just by a little. I'm just thrilled with that because that means word of mouth is going to happen and that means uh, freedom is going to happen. If people are wanting to get hold of that book or any of the books that you've written so far, where's the easiest place for them to find you? First of all, fredstoker.com is my website, so you can find information there. Obviously, at all the large booksellers, like for instance, Amazon, you can get it in uh, e-versions, you know, for Kindles and e-readers. You get the book at Amazon, not quite yet. You can't get the paperback, but you can get it at battleonbattleover.com. It's going to be released on Amazon in about a week or two. We just finished taping the audio version. It's going to be anywhere books are sold, really. And I'll put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can find you easily and find your book easily. But Fred, I want to say thank you for the work that you've done over so many years and and thank you for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Well, from the time I I heard the term Bleeding Daylight till now, I mean, I've just been dying to get on this show because I I love that title and the concept of kicking it uh, something like porn addiction until light light bleeds out. I mean, I'm excited. You're very kind to have me on. I'm hoping that everyone that listens takes this seriously and, and engages the battle. You can win. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.